Welcome listeners, this is Jonathan Yamasaki, founder and co-host of Go Entrepreneur Yourself. The name of this podcast speaks for itself. We empower you with digestible, inspiring, and valuable content on starting your own business. Our show stands for empowering future and current entrepreneurs to start dreaming and start entrepreneuring, which means to take that leap, take that first step on your idea as opposed to just sitting there. Not only are you gaining valuable advice on starting your own business, but you have the opportunity to connect with some of our entrepreneurs. Now let's hear from today's entrepreneurs. Scott Lively, president of Raise American, an organic food entrepreneur and an absolute freak about beef. Scott left a great and successful career in the IT industry to become a founder of one of the U.S. largest organic beef producer. Today, he oversees a broad portfolio of the company and private labels and brands. A self-professed beef geek, he boasts that he knows every cut of beef as if he cut it himself. He divides his time in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he's at now, and Martha's Vineyard, where he's the owner of Martha's Vineyard Sharks, a collegiate baseball franchise that is part of the New England Collegiate Baseball League. Scott is an advocate for local economic development and regenerative farming practices applied to large agriculture, which I'm really excited for, Scott, because I I just want to hear more about regenerative farming versus traditional methods. So we will get into that. But Scott, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So before we dive in, Scott, we want to run a a segment called Humanits. So in this segment, we're just looking for honest and human responses to a few rapid fire questions. What do you say? Sounds fun. Awesome. First question. Tell us your favorite childhood cartoon. Oh, a cartoon or cartoon character? Either or. I'm Daffy Duck is my, I was a Daffy Duck fan. He's a salesman. Uh, he is hysterical. <laughs> He's true. selfish. He's all about himself. And I, I love that character. Daffy Duck's got to be my absolute favorite. Awesome. Daffy Duck. Next question. What is your favorite steakhouse? My favorite steakhouse is actually in Scottsdale. It's called Mastro Steakhouse up on Pinnacle Peak in Pima. Uh, It's been around a very long time. It's the original Mastro's. They've become a franchise. They've changed. They've spawned and become a a national brand. But that one has not changed a bit. It is phenomenal. And uh, I don't sell them anything. I have nothing to do with them besides patronizing and being a customer there. And it is absolutely (laughs) the best piece of red meat I've had anywhere. And I've eaten meat all over the world. Yeah, I got to try Mastro's when I was in college because I got invited by like a great donor for this scholarship I was a part of. Scott, you're going to hate me. I made the mistake of not ordering medium rare. I did Uh not order my steak. What what, what, what Mastro's were you at? I was in the one in Washington, D.C. Okay, I'm not being rude. The further they get east, they're a little different. It is? Let's have a good That's good to know. I'm extending an invite to you to take you to Mastro Scottsdale when you want this spring. You let me know. It's an experience. I will take you up on that. I, I would actually be curious. Is it is? Let me ask a question. This will be part of this. So like, is it because it's made differently? Is it is it because where they get the meat is made differently? Or what's what's the difference? They don't disclose their supply. And oh, okay. it's, it's broiled. I think they have their system in their kitchen just down to a science. And in my book, I talk about there's four things that contribute to the attributes of a steak tasting the way it tastes. Who grew it? What it ate? how old it was. And the last is who prepared it. And that's one of the most influencing things of what makes a steak taste. You, you and I could cook the same steak and have vastly uh, different experience. Yeah, true. But medium rare. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. You can do a little medium if it's a, if it's a New York strip, but for fillets, ribeyes, medium rare. Okay. 
<laughs> awesome. Take notes. Take notes, listeners. So then last question, what is your favorite curse word? And you can curse on the podcast if you feel comfortable. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a big F-bomber. I, dro- I, I drop the fuck bomb constantly. <laughs> I, and all my kids cuss, and I didn't care as kids, and it never bothered me a bit. I don't have an issue with colorful language and i think that there's appropriate times and places to use it and right. i believe in being i believe in diplomacy and i believe in kindness but uh, yeah i drop the f-bomb constantly uh and i i think it's the most versatile word in the world because it's <laughs> whether you're angry or happy it's <laughs> fucking awesome you're fucking terrible it just comes out yeah and I, I i people know me that I have a foul mouth and I don't shy away from it. And um, I'm respectful around my parents. I try to be, and I'm respectful around other people that I know don't appreciate that. But for the most part, it's just language. Let's just say I'm a huge fan of free speech. Awesome. Well, that was Human Minutes with Scott. I want to talk about the business now. Tell us how you got started. That is usually not mentioned anywhere in your intro or on your bio when people introduce you. I, I feel like I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. In college, I had a pool cleaning business. It's <laughs> literally just me and four guys in a white little Toyota cleaning pools in Tempe and Scottsdale, making crazy money. I mean, I couldn't believe what people were charging us to clean their pools. And then I got into tech, tech sales, and I started a couple of software companies with some friends. And I really think that I've always had a, an entrepreneurial edge that if there's a way to do it, I'm going to find a way to do it better or different. Even in my sales approach, I, I would always whiteboard things out to ridiculous, annoying details because I really believe that everyone says the devil's in the details. I disagree. The success is in the details. Okay. It's all in the numbers. It's all in how you can make it and how you can present it. And uh, uh, when I got started in beef, I was watching a I think I, I made some pretty good money for my age. I was 26 or seven years old. Maybe I was 28. I don't remember. If I would have just done nothing, I probably would have, I could have lived a pretty good lifestyle, never had to work. I'd done some pretty good software deals. And um, I was watching a segment on the news. I think one of the things about being a good entrepreneur is, you know, I, I love the Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, but I also like the idea of click, you know, when something just clicks. And I was watching a segment, I think it was NPR, on Whole Foods had just made some crazy I think, I think they made like a hundred and like 600 million net. And it was like the biggest retail news ever. And it was about organic being the thing and organic being the consumer driven. And they're looking for it and people don't care what it costs. And the very next segment was about the beef industry and how beef had finally surpassed pork and chicken because of the Atkins diet. And the Atkins diet really got people to start eating. Oh, yeah a lot of red meat rather than just making it as a, an occasional thing or a special occasion. And I just, I clicked, I'm like organic and beef. If organic's the fastest growing segment of retail grocery and beef's the fastest growing segment of agriculture, is anyone doing organic beef? And I researched for a long time. This is back when we didn't have Google. We had Yahoo and Ask Jeeves and stuff like that. Ask Jeeves, yeah. <laughs> I did, yeah, I did a ton of research. I couldn't find anyone with an organic beef company. And at the, at the time, the USDA didn't even allow you to put organic on beef. The USDA organic label had not been um, appropriated for beef at that point. It happened in, mm. I think, October of 2004. And uh, I was ready. I, I just thought that was going to happen. I felt good about it. I bought 30 head of cow in Seward, Illinois. And a buddy and I spent a summer selling them door-to-door to Chicago restaurants just out of the back of a car. And uh, three, four years later, we were a $30 million business. And now that business today has evolved into Raise American 
and that's much larger than that. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a very large company. So when you were going door to door selling these, uh, I guess you could say, well, run us through that process. Uh, I didn't know what they were. were starting. I would walk in. I didn't know. I I knew nothing about the beef I was selling. And it was organic, <laughs> and it was grass fed, and it was local. That's only talking points I had. I'd walk in. Mm-hmm. And the butcher shop that had cut it for us would write, you know, Chuck Eye Roll. They'd write in, in marker or tape. And I'd walk into these restaurants and say, do you need a Chuck Eye Roll? Do you need one of these? I didn't have any clue what we were selling. We were selling a message, a lifestyle. We were selling a, a product that restaurants were just starting to understand. And uh, one of my heroes in, uh, in entrepreneur and building businesses is Burton, the snowboard guy, Burton Snowboards. and he had a huge challenge. He wasn't selling a product. He was developing an industry. Mm. Mountains would not let snowboarders on them at the time. Most didn't even know what it was. And they had to go out and sell, not just to consumers to buy the units, but they had to sell to ski resorts to, hey, this is a thing. This is going to happen. This is safe. They were building an industry. And that's what I think organic beef, we were doing too. We No one knew what organic meant with meat. I mean, the Webster's Dictionary says one unit or one molecule of carbon. That's organic. Okay, well, I'm organic then. I have carbon. So we were really explaining the lifestyle, uh, what no antibiotics and hormones meant. We, we were really explaining who their customers were. And I remember the first retailer that took us on in Chicago, I think it was called Potash Brothers. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. I don't remember. But they, um, mm-hmm. they really wanted us to train and talk to their butchers and their meat guys because they didn't know how to distinguish our meat from just conventional meat. They're like, why is it so much more? What's different? And we had to do all this training. It was really interesting uh, that we were building an industry and we were the first to market. We were the first to label and the first to put an organic grass fed steak with USDA certification on a shelf in Whole Foods in Northern California. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Wow. Talk to me about some of those challenges. You started mentioning them. Um, that you had while creating this company, but also bringing this industry to light when not a lot of butchers, maybe not even farmers or people that were like taking care of livestock knew about. Yeah. The challenges were ridiculous. One is there weren't a lot of organic certified beef producers out there, guys producing cattle, but no one wanted to fund this thing. No one wanted to put money into a deal that really didn't exist yet. That was a hunch. That was a, well, we think this is going to be huge. And uh, so the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's organic certification really helped us because they did a national blitz to try to get beef producers and dairy producers certified organic. So the more that they converted to organic production, the more it validated our business model. And we tracked that. We followed that monthly. We'd get online and look and we'd see. We'd ask. And we'd call them. So raising capital for this was very difficult. Uh, and I would also say that who you get your capital from is a very big decision too. Don't just take the first money that comes in the door. Uh, the first guys that invested in my company were this Minnesota hedge fund and they were just absolute dicks. They were horrible to deal with. It was the worst experience of my life. And they almost ran the company out of business. I think if they knew we were over a hundred million in revenue right now, they'd shit themselves because they really screwed it up. But um, that was hard. It was hard to raise money. And then we were so, at a point where we had no other choices, we took money from somebody I, I would prefer we didn't. So my advice to entrepreneurs is really do as much as you can on your own. 
I mean, be careful. You're gonna get a max out your credit card. You're gonna do all the stuff. You're gonna deplete your savings. But do as much as you can on your own. Really build the business by yourself. And it's okay to be small. Just be profitable. You know, it's okay to be small. Just be profitable. Make the money. You know, three hundred thousand dollars in net profit on three million dollars is a lot more impressive than three hundred thousand dollars on thirty million dollars. So just be profitable and keep it very, very clean. Yeah. So then start going back to when you were sort of growing this business and be, as you were referring to, you had to just use your own funds. What funds did you use on your own? Was it from already what you were making in the business, from savings, credit cards? So I'd made some pretty good cash in the software industry and I'd put that money to work. I, you know, I was sitting on close to several million, but I, I put about a million three of my own money into the business. Wow. On buying cattle. I bought a plant in Howard, South Dakota and employees mm -hmm. and sold it out. I didn't really start raising money till I had revenue, till I had till I, till I actually had cash flow, even though it was very low margin because we were spending so much for development, you know, capital equipment. It, we were spending so much money to build the business. We weren't profitable, but that, I waited till we actually had receivables from customers before I raised cash. Right. So then I guess now, now I want to move a little forward to specifically the meat. Talk to our audiences about how your steak matches up to like fries, Simply Truth, organic steaks, you know, the, the typical like targets, Walmarts, they have their own, right? And there's other yeah. competitors, but how does it compare price-wise taste? And why would someone choose yours over others? Well, you can pretty much tell, I mean, a lot of the products like the private label at fries and, and even the stuff at Kroger, they'll put on the back product of Australia. They'll, they'll admit it. There's a lot of foreign beef in the organic beef industry. There's a lot of Uruguayan beef, a little bit of Canadian, a lot of Australian beef in the uh, USDA organic beef uh, industry. Excuse me. So you can see it. Our product is, first of all, it's 100% American. It's domestic. It's local. Local is it's from this country. So uh, mm -hmm. we don't do any import. We've been very, very careful about that. Uh, we process a younger animal because we do more of a beef cattle, not a lot of dairy culls. Like most organic beef comes from organic dairies, just an old dairy cull that's done producing milk and maybe she qualifies for organic beef. So they use her for that. It's uh, mostly worth it. Typically she go to hamburger. Would it be for like cheaper meats, cheaper cuts? Yeah. Grinds, chucks, lower ends. You're not going to get a good steak out of that. It's going to be lower end mm. product. So um, we do a lot of private label. You know, we private label for some major retail chains and it's our product and they call it out. They say product to the USA. They call out that it's, you know, grass fed. Some people say a maturity, which means a younger animal, but the consumers don't know what that means. But um, right. <laughs> yeah, but companies like Sam's Club, Costco, Stop and Shop, Food Lion, they, they carry our product. They do they do it justice. They do a good job for it. And it it, it is a little bit more, but consumers can taste the difference and has a very loyal following. That's good. And I think that's important for sure. Like capturing a lot of people that maybe are looking for those premium steaks or just like the more organic pasture. What is it? Um, correct me. The pasture free, pasteurized pasture free. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, grass fed, grass right? Yeah. You want to hear gra grass fed, grass finished is what you want to see. Mm -hmm. And what a, does that term. mean? So grass fed, so all cows eat grass. So you could basically, you could say, you know, <laughs> anything could say grass fed. So you could, you could basically say 
if it ain't grass for a day, it could, you could you could technically claim it's grass fed. But grass fed, grass finished means it only ate grass its whole life. It did not have corn or soybean in it. And that producer has provided an affidavit supporting his feed protocols and how he's raised that animal. So then just to kind of go deeper into like what's right now, we know what's in the meat. What is in the soil? And the reason why I say that is because a lot of times you see like practices that are affecting the soil and creating desertification in some farmlands where it can affect and get that carbon can go back into the air. That's the whole nother conversation, right? Climate change. But also it goes into the food that the cows eat and the food that the cows eat is also that we inadvertently end up cutting and eating. So like what sort of things can you tell us about um, the soil that is being used to make that grass that is being fed, that good grass, I guess. I don't know how to describe it, but that the yeah, quality no, is grass to be yeah. given to you. You're doing great. So soil is everything. And if I took a spoonful of soil and showed it to you, believe it or not, there's millions of microorganisms in there. Healthy, rich, dark soil has millions of bacterias and good bugs and bad bugs of microorganisms in that that create it. Soil is as important to the cattle as your probiotics are to your stomach. Okay. So I consider soil the stomach of the earth. All right. You know, we at our stomach have good bugs and bad bugs. We have probiotics and antibiotics and you've got to, you've got to balance those out. And soil, it all starts with the soil. And we talk about the word regenerative is getting thrown around. We talk about sustainable. There's all these words, but what it means is we're returning something of usefulness back into the soil. We want the nitrogen in the soil, not in the air. And one of the things, there's a lot of farmland out there that's been misappropriated. It's being used for cattle where it should be used for crops. It's, you know, you have, there's a lot of hilly, very terrain uh, land out there that's not being used for anything. In fact, sometimes they'll put it into what's called the CRP program, a conservation reserve program. And they get paid to not farm it because it's in conservation reserve. Now, a lot of that land can be turned into organic grazing. And what you're doing is cattle are naturally good for soil, believe it or not. They, everyone says they trample, they destroy. No, they, they walk, they roam. That's like saying the bison 100 years ago were bad for the plains. No, the plains existed because the bisons were very natural part of the ecosystem. They grazed, they defecated, they created manure, they put nitrogen in the soil. It raised more things. It, it fed other animals. Cattle can be part of an ecosystem if done properly. If they're not stuck in a feed yard and crowded and sitting by each other in mud, they're not really doing much besides eating and gaining. Yeah. And and to let our audiences know, real quick, because you're saying you're dropping a lot of really great uh, great things. So like a feed yard, that's like a little confined area for them to just be at, right? When you well, should. sometimes it's huge. Sometimes there's up to 30,000 animals in a feed yard. Oh, it wow. can be very large and very crowded where the animals basically there to eat and not move much because they want it to gain and just not have a lot of activity. That's a feed yard. Mm-hmm. There's great videos. If you, if you YouTube commercial feed yards, there's some drone footage of some of the largest feed yards in the country. You can't believe, I mean, hundreds of thousands of animals on one property and that waste is going somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's, it's <laughs> worth watching. Yeah. It's worth watching. Yeah. So then, now that we've talked about the meat a little bit and we talked about like the soil. So I want to talk about leadership questions. So like, what is, 
If I may ask, like, are you doing anything to encourage or maybe motivate other similar ranchers, entrepreneurs like yourself to raise their livestock in a more pasture-raised, grass-fed way? Like, what is that that you're also doing? Because like how you brought this before in the past as like this was an industry thing you were bringing to a lot of new people. Uh, What have you been doing now? There's entrepreneurs, there's food entrepreneurs. And uh, I work with a lot of uh, young food entrepreneurs, actually. I'm, I'm mentoring two right now that have businesses that I'm very excited about. Uh, one's a plant-based cheese company, uh, cheese and chocolate. It's completely contrary <laughs> to beef. Yeah, it's the other side. It's a nutrient-dense plant-based food company that's doing aged artisan cheese and chocolate, and it's taking off. And this entrepreneur uh, named Kai, is Kai Keenan, is doing a great job targeting her market. I'm helping her put some structure and some, some long-term growth around her business. On the rancher side, you get their entrepreneurs too. They're, they're agricultural entrepreneurs. We are losing farmers left and right. Ranches are shrinking. People, it's not that they can't afford to do it. Kids just don't want to do it. They sell the, sell the property. They make a few million bucks. They don't need to do anything. But you have some people that are sticking and trying to do it differently. And one of the things I, I tell these agricultural entrepreneurs is you've got to sell your assets. If you have something unique, talk about it. If you have a lineage farm and you've been using the same genetics since 1930, that's huge. Talk about it. It's proprietary genetics. It's proprietary bull semen and calves. If you have a special feed regimen that you use that works, if you have extra access to water, talk about that. You've got to use your assets. If you want to be a commodity in your beef just to fit in a box and make what the government says you should make in your beef, then fine, do that. But if you want to make more money and if you want to create something sustainable, you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself from commodity beef uh, or commodity anything, chicken, beef, pork, whether it's organic or natural or just heritage or lineage, identify your differences and play them up. And if you don't know what they are, I'll help you find them. I'll help you figure out why you're different than commodity meat and why you're a a unique small family farm and how to brand that and market that. And you deserve more money for that. You'll get it. You will. You just have to spend the time doing it. Ranchers aren't used to branding themselves. They're not used to branding and marketing themselves. But they, they have to be if they want to survive today. And a lot are going very much direct-to-consumer. I'm seeing a lot go to direct-to-consumer. Yeah. So then what, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to get into that business to, to maybe better brand themselves and get out there um, when they're competing against the, the standard beef? I think like the last thing I said is direct-to-consumer is huge. I, I know a lot of guys that are processing their beef locally and selling online, put up websites. I know a guy in Colorado sold 340 head all online and uh, is doing really well. Hasn't had to take one cow to a feed yard in two years and he's making much better money. He's getting paid by the consumer and he's taking distribution channels, food brokers, retailers, truck freight companies, taking all these layers out of supply chain. He's putting that money in his own pocket. So I would find a way to consolidate your supply chain, take more steps out of it, keep your margin for yourself. And then you, you're a lot less dependent on what the world says you should be as a beef guy rather than what you want to be. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice there, listeners. <laughs> yeah, other food entrepreneurs, I'm just, you know, anyone that's got a food startup, I'm happy to talk to people. I, I love giving people advice. I've been, I'm investing in companies still. Um, I'm doing different things. So I'm working with artisan meat company in Denver that's doing charcuterie and they're doing old world artisan aged meats with American products. They're doing 
copas, brasolas, salami, salumis, and they're they're killing it. And uh, they just need to understand how to position themselves differently. They're not a corporate deli; they're a small artisan meat company, and it's 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 very unique stuff. I'm excited about it. Yeah. So then, talking about now, because because it, it looks like you offer services to those that are wanting to get into the food industry. I'm I'm always happy to help with advice, and if I like a deal, I'll invest in it. That's, that's it. There's no structure. That's perfect. What is then, this is a good question. What is a non-negotiable leader trait that you feel uh, entrepreneurs should possess? Something that's maybe is underrated, something you don't see in entrepreneurs that you know it's a non-negotiable, like this is what they should have. I want to work with them. I think the biggest trait we all need, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart because I made this mistake for, I, did, I wish I knew this before I was 40, is listen more. Listen a lot more than you talk. Be the guy in the room that's asking less questions, but much more pertinent and definitive questions, decisive. Be very specific with your words and listen more. And entrepreneurs that come from a sales background like I have tend to overtalk. They tend to oversell. And what they do is they, it's called you drink your own juice. You get so tied up in what you're doing and what you're selling you think if I just explain it enough, they'll understand. Not just to investors, but to employees, to customers, to partners. And you need to stop selling and start listening. If you have good messaging and people, if you have a very clear, easy to define product, people will understand it. But listen, listen to their feedback. Always assume the person you're talking to can teach you something really, really good even if you don't necessarily like them and they annoy you, listen. And I would say the biggest hurdle entrepreneurs that are hard charging and passionate have is they don't stop and listen. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great one. Thank you thank you for answering that. And I think with, with leadership, everybody, employees, mm-hmm. want to be, they want to be heard. They want to be listened to. So do it. And then you'll gather your information. But I, I, I would say, I'm not, I'm not following my own advice, but stop talking so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Like moving forward to another question, because I, this was kind of off the, so we kind of talked a little bit listeners before we did this recording. And uh, Scott here says he grew up in Glendale. So I wanted to ask you this question is, do you have any experience growing up that contributed to maybe building your resiliency? Would you mind sharing that story? Sure. So I would say what was a work ethic, you know, watching my father always have a very good, go to work every day, get there early, put in the time. My dad had this, this line that was, you know, go, you know, do good, but get done, get the work done, finish. Completion was a big thing for him. Uh, my mom was, uh, you know, worked at a bank. She loved her job at the Arizona bank, which doesn't exist anymore. She loved, you know, being a branch manager when she got promoted to that. She, uh, she was a teller when I was a kid, but she had passion in what she did. It was just like, she was a bank teller, but she loved her culture. She loved her community. And I, 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 I watched them work really hard. And these are two very, you know, working class people that had a family. And as I look back, you know, we had nice cars, we had new cars, we had a great lawn, we had a nice home. Watching that West Valley family as a child live a very good lifestyle through really hard work and passion about what they did and we still took vacations. We did stuff. We lived like normal middle-class people. It was great. Was was I think very defining. And I think is why I I put the time in. I, I I think one of the things you have to do is 
everyone talks about, you know, you got to work smart. You got to, you got to be smart. You got to be, but you also have to put the time in. You have to, you have to work hard. You have to put the time in. You know, I've, I'm 50 now and I still come home sometimes exhausted, but it feels good. I, I love being, doing something that I really like. I just spent two days making plant-based cheese in Providence, Rhode Island, and I loved it. I was, you know, in there at 7 a.m. till 6 o'clock at night watching them turn cashews into an artisan aged cheese, and I really enjoyed it. Um, today, I'm at a <laughs> What do you think you'll retire, Scott? What's that? <laughs> what do you think you'll retire? You're very yeah, passionate about your work. I don't I, know I, if there'll I, be a time to retire. I, I'll retire when I'm dead. I'm, not, I'm never going to retire. I, I hope I'm 72 and I'm still working hard. I love it. I've had plenty of opportunities to sit on a beach and do nothing. And if that is your end goal, if your goal is to make a lot of money and lay on a beach and do nothing, if you're an entrepreneur, you'd be bored in three days. If that's really what you want, (laughs) you're not an entrepreneur. You're not, you're not, that's not, that's not who you are. Cause an entrepreneur sells this company for 10 million and wants to start another one and sell for a hundred. Okay. An entrepreneur, Mm. it's never enough. It's constant self-improvement. It's every company is a little better because you learn from the last one. It's, you just, you don't want to stop. You love what you're doing. And if, if your job, if your, if your goal again is to make a lot of money at Atlanta Beach, you're not an entrepreneur. You're just somebody that just doesn't want to do anything. I love that. I love that strong opinion about you, Scott. Now we're going to move on to this, uh, the final segment. It's called Mind Your Business. So this is where we take pre-selected questions from our listeners and ask them to our entrepreneurs. Cool. So as a listener, we take the burden of asking a set of questions that you may be shy about, asking entrepreneurs, or maybe afraid of how they may respond to your question. So this is where you, Scott, you get the opportunity to answer the question however you like. They're respectful questions, but if you do not want to answer the question with conviction, I want you to tell me, mind your business. Okay. Are you ready for this segment? All right. So I either answer with conviction or I say, mind your business. Yeah, so you can answer it, whatever comes to mind, or yeah, or just tell me, mind your business. So the first one is uh, from uh, at Boba Steph on Instagram. How do you build resiliency into the ecosystems of your farms and livestock? It's an awesome question. Resiliency, again, it comes back to the soil. If your soil is strong and healthy, you're going to grow good quality grass and feed ingredients for your livestock. And if you manage pasture rotation well, your water supply will always be clean. And I think the biggest key is to not overexpose the land. If, you're, if, you're, if your land can handle a thousand animals, great, do a thousand, but don't put 4,000 on there. Manage the resources that you have. And, and it's all about soil health. The entire, the entire agricultural food world is about soil health. Awesome. Another one is from uh, at official Beto. Do you know about lab mad steaks and what do you think about it? Is this the future of meat production? Also, I can tell you about them. Okay. I'm, I'm actually writing a second book right now called What's Your Beef? And it's about every kind of meat you could eat. It's about plant-based meat, lab-grown meat, regular cow meat, blended meats. And I'm really curious about lab meat. I'm going to tell you, I'm curious. I have a lot of reservations. I did notice that a lot of the patents out there for lab-grown meat are owned by cardiologists, which I find very interesting. The questions I have that, and I'm not saying they're not out there, I'm just saying I haven't had them answered because I haven't spent enough time on the topic, but I plan on doing a deep dive into lab-grown meat here in the next six months. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be factories, I've already reached out to people. Uh, It's gonna be more than some videos, but. So the building blocks for a protein are amino acids, right? So we all know that. We know that from the eighth grade 
science class. Every building block for protein starts with amino acids. Amino acids are the building block for protein. So in other words, for a red meat protein to grow, you have to have a string, amino acid string. It has to be there. But for that meat to grow, it doesn't grow naturally on its own. It has to consume something. So that amino acid string has to actually be consuming something, a feed, to grow the meat. What's it eating? What is that feed? And where's the waste go? There's still going to be waste and there's still going to be a feed. You can't just grow tissue from nothing. So what I want to understand is the science behind how you're turning these amino acids into a red meat protein. What is being consumed to grow that and what kind of waste is being created and how it's being handled? I don't know. And that's what I want to know. Yeah. Wow. Some of my listeners are asking these crazy questions. I don't even know. (laughs) That's great. Let us know when that book comes out because I would love to bring you back and see what like what research you found. It'll be out this year. I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah. It'll be my second book and I'm excited. Awesome. Well then Scott, I guess the, the last thing I want to leave you with is, um, is a, well, the only two of those, those are easy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They only threw me too. But, uh, so the last question was, uh, related to just like anything you want to leave any last words of wisdom or advice for recent college graduates, young entrepreneurs that are trying to start a business, uh, what is maybe advice that you would give to them and resources, any resources in Arizona or nationally that they could use to, to help start their business? Okay. So there's actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I would like to be involved in this fund that's going out. There's trying to bring entrepreneurs to Arizona or fund Arizona entrepreneurs in any industry, tech, food, whatever. We need more of that. We don't have that in the Valley. What I would like to leave with is, listen, you graduated college. You want to start a business. You know, you got to have a job. If you want to be successful at whatever it is, don't just make it a side hustle. If you've got to work, like I've waited tables, I've done telephone sales, I've done everything you could imagine, I've cleaned pools. Make your ambition, your goal, your company, make it as important as your job. Don't just make it a side hustle. Don't do it two hours here and there and think it's going to work. You know, you have to sacrifice to make this work. And and, and this is something I, I really want to drive home. I remember being in Chicago in the software industry, and I was in, I was in tech, I was in IT. And I remember on Sundays, my buddies going to Bears games and tailgating. And I remember that was back when Jordan was the Bulls and the, them going to the games. And I loved that stuff. We all had tickets and stuff. And, and after work, everyone, you know, Thursday nights, people couldn't wait to go out. And there's a place called Melvin B's and margaritas and drink. This is tequila, by the way, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, I remember that. And I remember specifically, I remember the day that I said, you know, I, I can't go spend four and a half hours at a Bears game. I have shit to do. I'm working on a business. I can't go Thursday night at five o'clock. I've got to go home and work on this plan. I got to do some research. I got to make some phone calls. And I remember sacrificing some things that I wanted to do, which they wouldn't be a sacrifice if it wasn't. Of course you want to do it. And people are like, well, you didn't have life. I had a great life. I had a great time. You know, here I am. I was 29. I'm buying boats and these guys are trying to scrape up money to go on vacation. So you have to make that side hustle as important as your job. You have to make some personal sacrifices. Just don't let it come from your family mm-hmm. or your loved ones. Make it come from, you know, <laughs> football games and the shithead time with your buddies <laughs> and stuff. Make it make it come from things that don't matter. And, and, and it will pay off for you. Those small sacrifices. I'm convinced the four years that I spent not dicking around that I'd like to really paved the way for my beef business and really made it something special because I was taking it seriously. And I had, a, I had a job. I was still working in software at the time. I had to make I had two kids at the time, very young, and I had to have income. So I couldn't just give my job up and 
chase my dreams. I had to make money and do it on the side. And I just gave up some things that weren't really that important to begin with. And uh, I'm much happier for it now because it paid off massively. Wonderful. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell our listeners how they can reach out to you if they're looking for any advice. And feel free to throw in any plugs while you're at it where people can reach out to you um, if they're looking to work with you. Yeah, no, you can find me on raiseamerican.com. I think my email's there. If not, it's scott at raiseamerican.com. Yes, and we're also going to put it on the show notes. So for the listeners, you'll be able to see it on the show notes. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn. That company's doing wonderful, really happy with it. Uh, we're getting ready to launch a program with Costco. We'll actually be selling a half a cow on Costco.com. <laughs> and you will actually be able to go online. And if you have a big freezer or a cooler, you can buy a quarter cow or a half cow and have it shipped right to your house. Wow. <laughs> and it can be all the meat you need for a year. And it's grass-fed, it's organic. It's a very cool program. So when that comes out, I would say in the next 60, 30 to 60 days, check out Costco.com if you're not a member and look for the Raise American Half Cow program. It's going to be real. I'm actually really excited about this. So then you can't just say that without me knowing. Do I have to be a butcher to know how to cut this specifically? Like what, if I'm just a consumer that doesn't know about that? This won't be steaks. First of all, cutting steaks is not hard. You take a big ribeye primal, you decide how thick you want them. Start with the butt of the knife, just go through it twice. Easy. You <laughs> cut your steaks. You, it'll be very easy for people. And what I what I do is I cut three or four steaks, maybe five, and I freeze the rest of it and I save it for later. Anybody can do this. It's not hard. And we're going to give some instructions and some cutting instructions. That's awesome. That I think that's great because a lot of, especially the consumers right now, they're really wanting more interaction, right? More interaction with things and, and visuals. And this yeah. is a great way well, for the, them to the, just the, kind the of- The larger the piece of meat, Think about this. The larger the piece of meat you're buying, the closer you are to the farmer. If I'm buying a cow, yeah. obviously I'm really close, but if I'm buying a carcass, so the, <laughs> you've taken out the middleman, you've taken out the processor, you've taken out the retail. So the larger the meat, the more you're helping that producer. And that's true. Mm, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for tuning in. Guys, make sure, everyone listening, make sure to follow him, look him up if you're wanting to work with him and make sure thank to follow you. us and subscribe. Of course, Scott. Subscribe on the streaming platform. I'm going to tell my whole network about your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, So for those that that are just tuning in, check out our Instagram page at Go Entrepreneur Yourself. And feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The review is going to allow us to be able to continue to reach out to more people and share these incredible stories and digestible advice to future and inspiring entrepreneurs, especially in the Arizona community. I know we need it and it's out there and there's a lot of brilliant minds that are just not connected with brilliant entrepreneurs and and investors that are wanting to meet with you right now. So thank you. Thank you so much, Scott, for being on. Thank you. Nice meeting you.